Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum, for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. We're speaking during a pivotal week in the debt ceiling negotiations in Washington. President Joe Biden will meet with congressional leadership on possible paths forward. I'm grateful to speak with David about the peculiarities of the debt ceiling itself, as well as the political economy consequences of the current round of brinkmanship. David, thanks as always for joining us. Pleasure to be here. As I mentioned, I want to start with the notion of the debt ceiling itself. I suspect listeners and viewers agree that there ought to be a legislative role for approving the government's borrowing. I should say in parentheses, David, that here in Canada, the Harper government brought that role into the cabinet and the Trudeau government subsequently restored it to parliament, which I endorsed at the time. But this is different. The Congress passes appropriations, bills and budgets, and most years in my life, that has involved deficits and debt accumulation. But it also has the authority to set a limit on the U.S. government's debt itself. What's the policy rationale for the debt ceiling? Well, like a lot of things in American life and every democratic country's life, it's a historical accident. Um, Through the 19th century, uh, whenever the United States wanted to borrow, Congress would authorize a special issue of bonds, and it would give the Treasury the authority to borrow um, a certain amount of money um, in, in a certain way, and it would, and then the Treasury would go borrow it. Um, that's, for example, how the Civil War was financed. If you, you you'll remember, if you read your um, economic history of the Civil War, you'll hear them refer to first and second and third loans to finance the war. So each of those had its own vote in Congress to say the Treasury may borrow X amount of money. Um, that when the United States entered um, the First World War, it started by doing repeating the experience of the Civil War. There's a first Treasury loan that was authorized by Congress. By the time they got to the second Treasury loan, very soon after the first, Congress realized this war is going to cost more money than anything we've ever imagined. So instead of specifically authorizing the Treasury to borrow, we'll give them a credit card limit. Borrow up to X amount. Um, and when, if you need more, come back to us, borrow up to that amount. That should be enough to finance the war. Indeed, the Treasury did come back to Congress a few more times between um, 1917 and 1919. Um, and, and there it stuck. That became the habit. Um, it dwindled from view because over the 1920s and 30s, the public debt tended to come down uh, as the United States paid down the First World War debt. But something else happened. And this is where things got a little um complicated and potentially dangerous. Um, before the, in the 19th century, the United States didn't really have anything like a budget. Congress would pass appropriations bills and the executive would spend them. Modern budgeting begins after the First World War, when the ancestor of what's now the Office of Management and Budget is created. And for the next 50, 60 years, budgeting becomes very much a presidential prerogative. 
um, that the, that Congress there'd be a, there'd be a couple of committees of Congress that would be part of the budgeting process, but your average member of the House or Senate had very little say in how the government spent its money between 1919 and 1974. And so the tool that the average member had was this debt ceiling tool. And as debt began to grow after the Second World War, this became a very important tool to people in Congress. Uh, because otherwise, the president would write the budget with the con concurrence of these key committees, but the typical member would have very little say. That changes in the 1970s. Uh, Congress get, claim, reclaims a lot more power over the budget in the 1970s. That turns out to be a big mistake because the budget process, instead of becoming more democratic, it collapses. And instead of having budgets, you have these endless concurrent resolutions that we have now. We, I, don't, I can't remember when we last had a proper budget authorized in advance. Um, but Congress has a lot more power and the debt ceiling once again becomes obsolete. Now, this is a long story. Last point on this. So in the 1980s, the then Speaker of the House, Dick Gephardt, passes what is called the Dick Gephardt Rule that says, OK, well, since we we claimed our power over the, the, the budget, that will mean we'll have a rule, an internal rule of Congress, that whenever we borrow money, it will be deemed that we authorize the debt ceiling to go up at the same time because we did it. We spent the money. We raised the tax. We spent the money. There's a difference. That was our decision. So it's to be presumed that we okayed it. And as part of the partisan warfare of the 1990s, the Gephardt rule lapsed. And that's, and ever since then, there's this ticking time bomb of badly done budgeting, no proper budget, endless resolutions, individual members having a lot more say than they used to do, and this debt ceiling back and forth to um, bite to say that even though Congress taxed the money, even though Congress spent the money, Congress has one more vote on whether to borrow the money. It prompts the question, why has it persisted? Why, for instance, didn't the Biden administration and the Democratic-led Congress get rid of it prior to the midterm elections? Well, this is where there's a lot of fault in this um, situation today with the Republicans. But here's a place where Biden and the Democrats really are to blame. As we saw back in the 1980s, it, Congress did act to neutralize the debt ceiling uh, with the, the famous Gephardt rule, um, which said, again, if, if we spent tax the money and we borrow the money and there's a, and we spend the money and there's a difference, we're deemed to have given ourselves permission to borrow the money. Um, a lot of people warned there, there was a debt ceiling standoff in 2011 that was very serious. There had been a number along the way, but the one in 2011 was especially serious. And when the Democrats recaptured the presidency in both houses of Congress after 2020, a lot of people me among them said, just abolish it, just abolish it. You don't, you know, it doesn't serve any purpose. You're storing up trouble. I don't know why they didn't, but I have a theory. One of the real defects of democratic congressional management in the Biden era has been a, a, a delight in scoring tiny tactical victories. Um, so you see that in, in 2022, where democratic funders would give help to the most extreme Republican candidates, um, hoping they'd be more beatable. They would take, they would run the risk of defeating a normal, more normal Republican. Well, I think the debt ceiling was the same thing, that they thought if we have a debt ceiling standoff on the way to the 2024 election, that'll be good for Biden. If we have a vote in 22, or in the, uh, even in the lame duck session of 23, to get rid of the debt ceiling, we'll, we'll look like extravagant spenders. That'll be bad for us. So let's do what's tactically smart and stick the Republicans with this problem, even though it's a doomsday device that could blow up the world. I've read that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell believes that the Biden administration can get a deal with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It leads to a two-part question. First, what does the House Republican Caucus want? And second, can Speaker McCarthy actually deliver his caucus on any deal he strikes with the White House? 
Well, the reason the situation is so dangerous is because what both sides want is symbolic, not practical. That there, there is, I mean, the idea of, of looking at this Republican caucus and thinking there's something they want, they don't want anything. Um, it, you know, I, I said during the vote over McCarthy, it's very difficult to deal with the hostage taker. When the hostage taker takes a hostage and the victim or the target says, what do you want? And the hostage taker says, I like taking hostages. I enjoy holding hostages. <laughs> Hard to negotiate. So what the Republicans want is they want to impose their will on the, on the Biden administration. And they don't really care a lot about what the content of that imposition is. And what the Biden administration wants is not to have the Republican will imposed on it. And again, it doesn't care a lot about the substance. So while there are always deals to be done, in this case, dangerously, the sides are fighting for principle. The Republicans are fighting for the principle that we can use the debt ceiling to bend a Democratic president to our will. And the Democrats are fighting for the principle, unlike 2011, when you guys got away with it. This time, we will not let you use the debt ceiling to bend a Democratic president to your will. And that's the path to the confrontation that we're on. We all hope, and if you look at markets, the markets assume that rationality will prevail and that this unwanted disaster won't happen. But it doesn't look like where the off-ramp is, is because right now we're in the air realm of pure principle or pure dominance, not practical disagreement. I'm struck, David, that at this stage, the Republican holdouts aren't just radicals. It includes more pragmatic members like McConnell himself. In that sense, is this merely a negotiating tactic to try to extract some fiscal reforms in the lead up to the June 1st deadline? Or is there something else going on? Yeah. Oh, well, let's, as I, I think in this case, the Republicans are the worst actors, but they get such bad press. But let's for a moment look at this problem from their point of view. So their point of view is, if this debt ceiling were so unconscionable, you had an opportunity to get rid of it. And you might have taken a political hit. But you could have done it. At any time in the first two years of the Biden administration, you could have done away with it. You chose not to because you wanted to put us in a position where if we didn't go along with your spending plans, we were the villains who were going to blow up the world economy. Uh, and now we're coming to you and we say, we're not telling you our offer because what we want to establish is the principle that you will talk to us. Uh, there's no point telling you what our demand is and while you are saying we won't talk to you. The Democratic position is raise the debt ceiling, no discussion. We can talk about the budget later. There's no budget process. The budget process is broken. Everybody knows that. But the Democrats are saying, first you raise the debt ceiling, then we negotiate. And the Republican position is, we want to agree that you will even talk to us before we tell you what we're talking about. And since you, for the moment, won't agree to talk to us, there's no point in putting an offer on the table. So, Agree to talk to us, and then we'll make an offer, and then we'll haggle. And by the way, you'll probably win, Democrat. you Democrats will probably win, because actually most of the things that Republicans are saying they want to do would be rejected by the great majority of the Republican caucus. Well, in that vein, is there any appetite amongst Democrats, David, for any form of fiscal reform? Or at this stage, is the Democratic-led Senate and the White House itself committed to an ongoing program of more and higher spending? Well, if this crisis or impending crisis comes to a happy resolution, that what you just pointed to is the way it will, that I think there are a lot of people in the Democratic House and especially in the Democratic Senate who think the Biden administration is way offside here, um, that uh, Biden, you'll remember that Biden signed that compact with Bernie Sanders during the campaign of 2020, and no one took it seriously. It, it, was, it was a lot of pages, I, I think 100 pages, so no one read it. Um, uh, I didn't read it. Um, it, I, I noted that it was there. It looked long. And, and you tend to think these things, how meaningful could they be? But the Biden administration has ended up 
despite Biden's own personal reputation for moderation, delivering a fiscal policy that is way to the left of where certainly the typical Democratic senator is and probably even where the typical Democratic House member is. So I think a lot of people on the Democratic side are saying, look, we, we're with Biden. We don't like the principle of the Republican hostage taking. But we also don't like where we are because uh, what we are saying is we won't talk to you at all. We just want to keep on course with the spending path of 21-22, which we ourselves, many of us, regard as extravagant. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let's just stay on this topic for a second, David. I'm struck how much the policy conversation has shifted in Washington over the past several years. You were part of the Bush administration when there was a real emphasis on the need for significant fiscal reform, including with respect to Social Security. Fast forward, you know, 15 years, and it seems like Social Security reform is, by for all intents and purposes, off the table. Reconceptualizing Medicare, similarly, by and large, neglected. What has happened? How have we gone from an emphasis on fiscal reform and you know something resembling fiscal prudence to the kind of spendthrift politics on both the left and the right that dominates Washington today? Yeah, well, a couple of things have happened. Um, one of the things that's very important in the background, for reasons that I won't pretend that I understand, although maybe somebody else does, the path of Medicare spending has has really slowed. So when you were having this conversation, if you were having this conversation in 2007, um, when people talked about entitlements, what they meant was Medicare. Social Security's outlook is extremely predictable. Right now, you, you have a pretty fair idea of how many 65 plus people there will be in the population 20 plus years from now. You can figure out um, what Social Security will cost in 20 years out, 30 years out, 40 years out. You can make a, a reasonable estimate. You have to make some assumptions about inflation, but it's not crazy. Um, whereas Medicare, it just, the, the Medicare line was just so terrifying. Um, but for reasons, again, I don't understand, the Medicare line has tended to flatten really uh, since the middle of the last decade. It's still going up, but not as fast as it was. And especially when you consider how the population is aging, it doesn't look as scary. So that's one that has taken a little bit of the impulse away um, from uh, the entitlement reform program. Um, another thing that has happened is you talked about fiscal reform. What fiscal reform meant was some attempt to get back to a budget process. Um, you know, and the, the theory was the way the system's supposed to work um, is. The House of Representatives has the lead. Uh, they pass a budget, um, but the, the budget is then separately appropriated by these appropriating committees. It goes to the president uh, for the president's concurrence. And maybe the president originally proposes the budget and Congress approves it. But anyway, there's something anyway, that even the dream of that looks looks dead. As you say, we can't remember the last time there was such a budget. Um, but there are these are these authorizing resolutions. And I think a lot of people, when they look at the state of American politics today, don't say it's just not 
possible to imagine how you could get Congress to work well enough that it could go back to budgeting. So that dream of so-called regular order, um, that looks that looks pretty dead. Um, and and the last thing is, um, look, uh, the, the big impact of Trump on the Republican Party from a fiscal point of view is he's turned the Republican Party into a spending party. That uh, the biggest, the people who get the most from the federal government are the old and the rural. And Oh, and, and the agrarian. So guess where those people are now? They're Republicans. And so the Republicans have very little interest. The, the things that the Republicans want to cut, I mean, that's why you hear them talking about PBS and others. I mean, the, the things that the Republicans want to cut, cut are fractions of pennies within the federal budget. Their constituents benefit from the things that are the big dollar, the defense, defense, Social Security, Medicare, veterans benefits. Uh, those are programs that the Republicans want to cut and want to protect, and that they are the overwhelming predominance of the federal budget. Let's look ahead now. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell have warned of an economic calamity if a deal isn't reached. Yellen, for instance, compared it to the 2008 global financial crisis. I know it's conjecture, David, but can you talk a bit about the possible economic fallout here? And similarly, what do you think would be the political consequences if congressional inaction pushes the U.S. economy into a freefall? Well, the answer to this question depends on something I, I don't know, and that is very controverted, and maybe the experts don't know, which is how effective can the United States government be at prioritizing its payments? One of the, one of the, the optimistic cases, um, the federal government has obligations to its bondholders, to the holders of debt, and it also has obligations to its contract holders. It would be really painful and nasty if the United States were late paying its contracts, but that would not be the end of the world. It, it, it could, the United States is, is government's the largest purchaser, I think the single largest purchaser of goods and services on earth. So if it's late paying employees, if it's late paying defense contractors, that's gonna have impacts to people's uh, payment systems. It, it could cause a recession, but it's a different thing from if it defaults on its debt. So the question is, does it have an ability to say, we pay the debt, we have enough revenues to pay the debt, but we will be late on some of our other obligations. Can it do that? I don't know. Um, people argue about whether they If they can, then you're looking at something nasty but not fatal. If they can't, then you're looking at something fatal. Um, one other thing that is out there is the question of, can the, does the United States government have the authority to ignore the debt ceiling altogether? And this goes to the Supreme Court. But at, at the end of the Civil War, when um, the United States allowed the Southern states back into Congress, the 14th Amendment put a new requirement on it. It said, because um, both the North and the South had borrowed a lot of money to fight the war. And the question is, what, what was the status of this debt? And the North had forced the Southern states to repudiate their debt, and that impoverished um, everyone with cash in the South. And there's fear that if once the South was in Congress again, they might try to play the same trick on the Northern debt. So the 14th Amendment says that it is constitutionally forbidden to pay any of the Confederate war debt and constitutionally forbidden to question, that's the word, question the public debt of the United States. So um, what does that mean? Does that, uh, I mean, as we talk about the debt, we are questioning the public debt. And the 14th Amendment says that it is constitutionally forbidden to question the public, uh, uh, the public debt. So there is an argument that some people make that, you know, that n none of this matters. Uh, that uh, if, if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, the federal government keeps paying the debt because the public debt can't be questioned. The problem with this is, remember, the issue here isn't really the debt. It's also the contracts. 
Um, if, if you are someone who's supplying you know, goods and services to the United States government, it's not much consolation to you to know that the debt holders are being satisfied because your contract uh, is 30, 45, 50, 90, 110 days late. You have, you have people to whom you owe money and you can't pay it if the government doesn't pay you. Last time we spoke, David, we discussed your excellent essay for The Atlantic about the evolving presidential landscape in the Republican Party. How does a showdown over the debt ceiling influence at all the Republican presidential scene? Does this strengthen DeSantis's hand? Does it weaken DeSantis's hand? Maybe just score the politics for a minute. Well, part of the politics, I, I did write this for The Atlantic. DeSantis is, was at one point in his career very close to the budget hawk wing of the Republican Party. It is going to be very hard for him to criticize Congress in this debt ceiling fight. And one thing he needs to be ready for is Trump will have no such inhibitions. That if, if the polls begin to go badly for the Republicans, as they did in 2011, and I think they tried to repeat the same stunt a couple of years later, and the polls then were even worse. Polls are always bad for Republicans during these government shutdowns they periodically force. Um, Trump could well come out uh, and denounce them and, th and then uh, and leave Congress in a very vulnerable and suspended position. I mean, this debt ceiling fight is not what I mean, the Republican primary voters want to see their party fight Biden. But they don't care a lot about what the fight is about. They're just as happy fighting about Disney as they are happy about fighting about the budget. And meanwhile, fighting Disney has very few real-world consequences, whereas fighting about the budget has a lot of real-world consequences. Yeah, I would just say in parentheses that it reflects the extraordinary change we've witnessed in Republican politics over the past decade or so that Ron DeSantis's association with entitlement reform is now a, a possible vulnerability that no doubt Donald Trump has and will use against him. Let me put a penultimate question to you, David. You talked a bit about the possible threat to the U.S. economy and in turn the global economy. What, if anything, should Canadian policymakers be doing to prepare for the U.S. possibly blowing through the debt ceiling? Well, some things are just are beyond. If the United States, there's just nothing. It's like, what, what, what should Canada's policy be in the event of a global thermonuclear exchange? <laughs> just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a lot of say. But here's one place where I am really worried about where Canada is right now. So um, Canada has acted, as you know, just a few hours before you and I are speaking today to um, to um, expel a diplomat who was involved in threatening a Canadian parliamentarian. The Chinese have begun a program of retaliation. I believe they have expelled a Canadian consul in Shanghai. Um, that's probably not the end of it. As Canada discovered during the two Michaels case, if Canada goes up against China alone, Canada is extremely vulnerable. Um, it need, it, uh, and so I really hope that uh, the government has had consultations with the United States, with the UK, with EU allies, with Japan, to make sure there is a united front in this matter. Uh, it's going to be very hard if there's a debt ceiling fight to get the attention of any part of the United States government on anything else. Um, and the debt ceiling fight also has very large implications in the US-China relationship. So one way that Canada could find itself offside is if a dis if America is so consumed and distracted, Canada may be alone in this coming diplomatic um, standoff with the Chinese state, where the Chinese state has a lot more power than the Canadian state. Great insight. Final question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that an eventual deal will be reached? Um, I'm optimistic that a deal will be reached. Um, I realize I'm reflecting conventional views. I mean, again, the markets think so. 
Um, no, no one is pricing. There may be, it, when a deal is reached, you may see a little bump in various kinds of um, stocks and bonds, but no one is expecting a big bump because no one has seen a big sell-off. But it is a dangerous situation because the fight because the fight is about abstractions, because it's about the desire to dominate, it's very hard to see how you get a compromise. Um, because the compromise, the way you get a compromise is that you yield to the Republican principle, that they can have this conversation. And then the Republicans will yield to the Democratic content of the conversation. But the Republicans are, fight, that's what the fight is right now. Should we even have this negotiation? And, and the only way that this gets settled is if the Republicans prevail. And the Democrats agree to have the conversation. And that would be a hard, hard thing for the Democrats to swallow. Just a masterclass, David, on a big issue that'll have implications for Canada one way or the other. I want to thank you for joining me for this conversation. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Brum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>